sends me down to the office. They call my parents in, and he says to my parents, he goes, your son has no musical talent whatsoever. Keep him as far away from music as humanly possible. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Voice Equals Power podcast, where we explore the big question, how does an artist find their voice? I am your host, Nicholas Krolak. If you like what you hear today, you can keep up to date with my travels through Sonic Space and my website, nicholaskrolak.com or on Instagram at Nicholas underscore Krolak. Terrell Stafford has been hailed as, quote, one of the great players of our time, a fabulous trumpet player, end quote, by piano legend McCoy Tyner. Stafford is recognized as an incredibly gifted and versatile player. He combines a deep love of melody with his own brand of spirited and adventurous lyricism. Stafford's exceptionally expressive and well-defined musical talent allows him to dance in and around the rich trumpet tradition of his predecessors while making his own inroads. Stafford is the director of jazz studies and the chair of instrumental studies at Temple University founder and band leader of the Terrell Stafford Quintet and managing and artistic director of the Jazz Orchestra of Philadelphia. Stafford is renowned in the jazz world as an educator, performer, and leader, and has received countless award nominations and accolades. Terrell Stafford, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Appreciate it. I really appreciate you making the time to talk to me. And you're actually the number one requested guest on the show. Wow. So uh, of my listener base, you know, they write me every once in a while and request and uh, you're the number one. uh, So it's great great to have you here. Great to be here. Thank you. To start the the interview off with a couple months ago at the Jazz Philadelphia Summit, Mm -hmm. you gave the keynote address and... There's a bunch of things in there that I would like to get into. I'll probably save most of it for later. But one of the things that really jumped out to me was uh, a story you told about a teacher that you had that, I think to put it lightly, discouraged you from pursuing trumpet performance. Could you uh, share that uh, with the with my audience? I think that was a really powerful story. The one that you're referring to um, was a teacher that accepted me as a student at the university, encouraged me to be the best trumpeter I could be. And then something changed where this teacher was became really obsessive, maybe would be the word for it, with my embouchure because mm-hmm. it was different and started to become pretty obsessive with 
my equipment that I played because it was different. And uh, and he was he's a great person, great teacher. But I think as being a teacher myself, when students come to me and present something out of my comfort zone, my first response is to bring them inside of my comfort zone. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's something that he may have wanted to do by saying, okay, your, your armature is not centered. Why don't you, why don't you center it and get it straight? And I tried and mm-hmm. I, I really gave it an earnest try, but it just, it completely did not work. Mm-hmm. And then <clears throat> I would come to my lessons and I would play with the armature he wanted and I would sound God awful. And then I'd go to the practice room and practice with my old armature. And he came by a practice room once and heard me. And he was so disappointed in me. He said, you know, if you don't change your embouchure, you're not going to make it in this playing trumpet past the age of 25. Mm. And uh, he was very specific, you know, in saying that. So at that point, I became extremely defeated. I accelerated my time in the music school and graduated. And and I quit trumpet for about, I don't know, three three to four months. Mm. And then I had some great things that happened in my life. I had some great friends that took me to here and went to Marcellus and I and I heard some you know incredible trumpet playing which inspired me to pick it back up again and that led to my whole reason to be playing the trumpet now mm-hmm. you know, so I think I needed to go through that to find out what the truth was about what I really needed to work on and I did and went and after meeting him he pointed me in the right direction and the, and he pointed me to his teacher William Fielder and that was incredible mm-hmm. the most incredible experience I've ever had in education being under his tutelage and then another another experience was at the beginning of my so-called musical life I really wanted to play trumpet and I was in fourth grade and my parents we moved from Miami to Chicago Mm -hmm. and uh, culture shock in every way you know (laughs) I mean so I get in Chicago and it was winter you know (laughs) 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 and it's like you know like four or five six feet of snow I'm like never seen snow and just Mm -hmm. And so we get there. I told the band, I told the band director that I wanted to play trumpet, and the band director said, "Okay, great. Well, before you can play trumpet, you have to play a stringed instrument for." Her. And so I picked up, you know, they said you could play cello, you could play violin, you could play viola, vi- you know. And, they, and so I said, "Well, I think I'll play the violin." They're like, "Well, we're out of violin, so why don't you play? <laughs> why don't you play the viola?" And I did. And this teacher was so brutal. He would every note that I would play wrong, um, he would bash my fingers with his bow so my 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 fingers were purple you know from him hidden and and and, uh, i tried to hide it from my parents i didn't want them to think you know i'm failing on this instrument um but there was one day he came in and and i was supposed to be playing baba black sheep and i'd really practice it but this dude made me so nervous i come in i start playing baba black sheep and i was and i played a wrong note and he picks up his bow and i he was coming down to hit me and I just me- meant to block his bow with my bow. And when I blocked his bow, my bow slipped out of my hand, hits him in the face, <laughs> puts a bil- big welt, breaks his glasses, uh, sends me down to the office. They call my parents in. And he says to my parents, he goes, your son has no musical talent whatsoever. Keep him as far away from music as humanly possible. Wow. So I'll never forget that one. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah, that I I feel like... Um, yeah, that's. I feel like we've all had, uh, maybe not to that degree, but we've all had our our moments where we feel very defeated. And for every person that says you can't, there's always someone around there, just around the corner. If you just kind of keep going, uh, there's always somebody that's like, oh no, you know, 
come on, you know, you got it. You got it. It's in there. Yeah. You just got to get it out. So thank you so much for sharing that. For I sure. feel like uh, we all go through some form of that uh, in our lives. Uh, you talk about when someone, pre- a, a student presents you with something that's uh, out of your comfort zone, how how do you deal with that? Uh, I let them know. Yeah. You're like, you know, I'm not really sure mm-hmm. um, what to do um, for you. Um, I don't want, you know, and I, I let, I'm so honest many times when I teach because, you know, I think teaching has turned into this thing, you know, the teacher is authoritarian and the student is just, um, you know, this peon trying to learn, whereas I want to empower my students and I can mm-hmm. empower them through my honesty because if they come to me and they ask me a question that I don't know, I let them know I don't know it, but I'm going to find out the answer. And sometimes mm-hmm. I'll call someone who may know. Mm-hmm. And say, hey, look, the student has this question. I remember specifically, there was a student that came in, and the student says, I can't get a sound on my trumpet. They're like, I'm going to see this specialist who's told me to do these outrageous things that I'd never heard of in my life. Like, you know, clamp your teeth together and all this craziness. And and I said, well, do you, do you want to continue doing that, or do you want to for me to sh- share with you how I do it students said I want to continue doing it can you help me to get a sound like this mm. and I was like I-, I don't know how to help you get a sound <laughs> like that like yeah. it's so uncomfortable it looks so uncomfortable basically what I did is I said okay and this was in a lesson I said I let me think about who I would ask this question to about how to so I called John Faddis who's been like a mentor to me for years and I said I said Faddis this particular student has been studying with blah 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 and doing this and and uh, they they want me to help embellish their sound with this new technique and so so Fadis says well let me hear about this new technique and so the student describes it and he goes that's the dumbest thing I ever heard <laughs> in my life why would you want to get a sound like that now that's really what I wanted to say right yeah, yeah, yeah. but he said that's the dumbest thing ever and he says you know I w- what I would suggest for you to do is if you're in the studio with Terrell Stafford embrace what he has to tell you and and find out the way he does it mm-hmm. when you when you're in the studio of Wynn Marcellus embrace what he has to do and and see what he has to tell you when you're in my studio embrace what I do and see, and and he told the student he goes you know to be a great student you have to be open mm-hmm. so you're asking someone who has a way that he has found success in teaching students to get a sound that if you embraced it and let go of this other thing, maybe you could grow from it, and maybe you could get the sound that you want. Mm-hmm. And the student said, okay, point well made. And we got off the phone, he goes, show me what you have to show me. Mm-hmm. But I was baffled, like, I, I really didn't know this technique, I'd never heard of it, I thought, you know, my pedagogical chops were okay, because I try to read as much as possible, and, and learn different ways, and learn different methods, and mm-hmm. this one baffled me. Yeah. So that was a scenario that I was just dumbfounded in how yeah, to respond or how to teach, f- from what I heard. Mm-hmm. That that <coughs> reminds me a lot of a a th- a theory of sales that I've I've heard of recently. I can't remember exactly what the theory is called, but it deals with the difference between selling something in the information age versus before the information age. And before the information age, there was a basically an information imbalance where this person selling had all the information and the person buying did not have the information. Mm. 
and now it's evened out. And so the, I'm thinking of it as a, as an, as an educator now, the information for the student is, is all out there. Mm-hmm. So the, it seems to me, and, uh, I would, I would like your opinion on it, sure. that the, the role of the educator is increasingly about curating an experience or curating the, the educational experience for the student and also, you know, building the village around the student mm-hmm. whenever there's uh, like, as you said, something you're not comfortable with, you know, find the person that it, find the person that is the expert. Yeah. You know, we're also in, in this information age, we're also connected. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts, thoughts about, about that? Yeah. You know, I'm not trying to talk myself out of a job, but I mean, mm-hmm. I really want to be real yeah. with, 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 you know, you asked me, you know, I, I, I look at an institution and there's, there's a couple of types of students that come through, through my studio. Mm. There's the type of student that has done their research and they're saying, okay, I'm going to come to this teacher to get this thing. And, and that's, that's what I want. And then they come to me and they say, can you help me with this thing? And I show them this thing and, and we go from there. But, and so in me teaching what I'm showing, you know, teaching the student, I, I look at myself more of, as a griot mm-hmm. as opposed to a teacher. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not, I'm not necessarily teaching them. I'm sharing experiences that I've experienced along the way that has helped me to develop as a player. Now I, when I say that, I want to continue to get those experiences so I can develop, develop even more. I haven't, I'm not saying I've arrived, but I want these students to know that, that, um, I'm like the ultimate cheerleader. You know, I want to encourage, I want to direct, I want to provide an, an, an atmosphere that they can be other around other students of, of like-mindedness. Mm-hmm. I want them to be in an atmosphere that, that they can find out different experiences from teachers here that ex- experience similar things to me and, and different things for me. So I want to provide, you, you, you hit it on the head, I want to imp- provide, I want to be the incubator you know, for yeah. this talent, you know, I want them to sit inside of this office and, and, and mature and grow as a player, as a person. And then when I feel like I don't have much more to offer, then I, I want to be honest and mature enough to say, we've reached our end. I think you should go study with such and such now. Yeah. Um, and then get what you can from them. But I think in each person they go to, they're going to learn that person's experience, you know. Mm-hmm. So teaching is, is, is a funny word for me, you know. I don't know if I teach. I just share and I direct and I provide uh, an environment that's comfortable mm-hmm. and an environment that, that you can be vulnerable in and know that it's a safe environment. That's what I want to provide mm-hmm. as a teacher mm-hmm. and as a director of a program. Yeah, absolutely. Going back to uh, students and and comfort zone i just want to give a quick shout out to david wong who i i thought was was amazing at 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 doing that and he knew he was very honest with like what was his thing and what any anything i brought him he was never never shut me down ever mm-hmm. you know and always always brought it kind of in the fold of and related it back to kind of his thing and full disclosure i studied i did my masters at temple and uh um, really, really, really got a lot out of, of everybody, but specifically Dave. David, yeah. And yeah. I just to share. So all the years I played with David, I said I said to him one day, I said, 
man, I really want you to teach a temple. You know, like, like everything that, that you are about, mm-hmm. I'm a huge fan of, and I would love the students to be exposed. And he goes, man, I don't think I have anything to offer any student <laughs> at Temple or anywhere else. And I said, man, are you crazy? And he goes, I don't, I haven't even thought about teaching or how it presents. I said, just try this for me, man. Just, yeah. just say yes and come to the school and just be you. That's mm-hmm. all you have. Just be you. And, you know, students would come in and, 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 and he was nervous. He was really nervous this, mm-hmm. you know, his first week here. But, you know, it's a testament to him being, being nervous because that's humble, you know. I yeah. love that. But it's a testament to the students because the students came in and just from their questions and their interests, they made him, you being one of them, yeah. made him feel so at home and so comfortable. Mm-hmm. So that's what I love about Temple University. And I'm not saying I, I don't love any other school that I've taught at, but I love the vibe here that, that a teacher or person on his level felt humbled like i don't have anything to show the students knowing how much this brother knows it's like unbelievable you know and from you saying that you know you know for him i wish he could i hope he hears this Mm -hmm. so he can not only hear the shout out but hear how he's so loved and appreciated at this place absolutely and when i applied here he -hmm. wasn't on faculty Mm -hmm. and after i got i didn't even know he was going to be here until maybe a month before i started yeah yeah, I was I was really excited about that, and and thank you for bringing him on. <laughs> My pleasure. I would like to move on a little bit to some more of the things that you talked about in your keynote address sure. at the uh, Philadelphia Jazz Summit. Mm-hmm. It was entitled "The 21st Century Jazz Musician," mm-hmm. and there was a lot in there, and it was it was, if I may. Some uh, make a summation of it. It was your your thoughts and feelings about w- what the 21st century jazz musician needs yep. uh, uh, in their in their toolkit. Yep. Uh, could you uh, talk about a couple of those those things that you think are very essential and perhaps underthought about? Well, I mean, I mean, I think that uh, one thing that I think all of us probably need to, uh, including myself, really need to focus on our goals you know uh i've always been a goal-oriented person partly because of my father you know Mm -hmm. he was in the military and uh that made him (laughs) very Mm -hmm. goal-oriented and so he's very strict and he's 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 a creature habit i'm everything he is you know i'm not sure how strict i am but i'm a creature habit and so placing goals and it just it just not even just writing down goals things that you want in your life is important because that's your vision. When people say, ah, what vision do you have? My vision are my goals. I write down my goals for this department. I write down my goals as a teacher, as a player. And I hope that I achieve my goals. Sometimes they're harder because life gets in the way. You know, the older you get, the more responsibilities. That's why I always tell the students, like, enjoy this time. Like, mm-hmm. you don't have to worry about a mortgage right now, bro. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. enjoy this ride. Yeah. Because when life kicks in, it's not as easy, you know. So so I talk about goals. I think goals are really important. The roles of colleges and universities now. And, that you know, there's so many naysayers that tell students. It drives me crazy. You know, oh, you know, there's no more Art Blakey, so you're never going to have that experience. You know, there's no more places to play and blah, blah, blah. To me, that's just like a crock. That's mm-hmm. just, you know, I think there's opportunities 
for anyone who's eager, you know. So the role of colleges and universities have, have, have taken the place of the Art Blakey's and the Bobby Watson's and, and maybe the Terrence Blanchard's. But you could still have many, many opportunities through the school. And that's why I think it's important, like at Temple, to bring folks in who are doing like David Wong is doing. When you look mm -hmm. at his calendar, that he's doing. Mm -hmm. He's the busiest man in show business. And why is he doing? You know, that's something that every student should be saying. Why does why does everyone have him on a gig or have him on a session? What is how is he different than me? Different than me. You know, what does he have to offer that's different than what I have to offer? So that can really help. So I think finding out the roles of colleges and universities, marketing, PR, mm -hmm. branding is so important. Looking mm -hmm. at ourselves as a product is it good enough just to play great no it's not you know if you if you get a lucky break and and you happen to win that herbie hancock competition you know that'll provide you on a different trajectory than if you finish college in four years you know how do you how do you brand yourself where do you go how do you seek that so i think that's really important i think finances are really important mm. something that no one really wants to talk about my kind of investment person uh, always tells me be careful about speaking about investments because you know if you give the wrong advice people can blame you so I don't necessarily say invest your money in this fortune 500 or here mm -hmm. but I speak about you know saving investing mm -hmm. uh, managing yeah that's a huge thing you know time management is mm -hmm. a huge thing you know I mean how much time do we really waste? And life will tell you how much time you waste, you know, because, you know, when you have more responsibilities, you have to figure out ways to utilize your time, you know. And so I speak and I and things that I'm speaking to you, I try to speak to my students about. Mm -hmm. I'm doing that same kind of keynote here. I, it, that keynote, it's, it's more of a workshop that Gerald asked me to do as a keynote, but... Mm. I do it as a workshop to, to go around to different schools. I just did it in Finland, doing it here on campus in a couple of weeks. I'm doing it for a high school program. And so I think it's really important just for musicians to think outside of the box. You know, like, oh, there's no gigs. Sure there are. Mm -hmm. Let's look at where the gigs are. Let's look at your niche. Let's mm -hmm. look at how you sell yourself. Let's look at, you know, like in the meeting we were at yesterday when, when a presenter said it would be great if, if musicians had some headshots or or yep. bio, mm -hmm. you know, how do we get there? Where do we go? Mm -hmm. You know, how can we get this stuff done? And that, I want to be that resource for anybody who's interested. In, and, and, and so that's why this keynote came up and the, the idea for it. And then I, I, I'll, part of the keynote that I, I think is important, most important to me, is collaboration and community. Mm. That's amazing. That's been so amazing to me. And it's been new to me, you know. I never thought about collaborations and really community until maybe five or six, maybe seven years ago, the mayor of Philadelphia came to me and he goes, hey, I want you to start a jazz orchestra of Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I said to the, I said, I'm not interested. And they just think about it. I said, okay, I'll think about it. So I called Wint Marcellus and I said, I need your help. This is what happened. They asked me to, to start this jazz orchestra of Philadelphia. I have no clue on how to do this. I don't know anything about it. And he goes, first of all, I think you should accept it. I said, really? He goes, I think you should accept it. And he goes, when you accept it, I want you to think about two things, collaboration and community. And I said, okay. So I said, um, 
He goes, you're going to have to collaborate with folks, whether it's the politicians in town to make sure that this band is funded, finding sources to be your financial, your, your fiscal sponsor. And then he goes, and I want you to think about community. Think about what Philadelphia is missing to you. And he goes, what do you think is missing? And I said, well, you know, there's North Philly, the musicians there and the musicians in South Philly because of the two schools. Mm-hmm. And he goes, well, what do you think? I said, well, if it were up to me, I'd find a way to bring them together. He goes, well, let, your, let this orchestra provide collaborations and community. So the, the jazz orchestra is teachers from Temple, freelance musicians, people that have been in Philadelphia and or maybe in New York now that have a, you know roots here, and it's university arts teachers all come together to play in this group. I love it. And so basically what it's done in these seven years, all the students from both schools come out to the concerts and they hang out. In, in the lobby of the Kimmel, everybody's hanging out. And so it's beautiful collaborating with different people, whether it's now I've collaborated with the Philly Pops or collaborating with different artists, you know, uh, from Jimmy Heath to, to Benny Golson to Kenny Barron, you know. We did this uh, we did this gala event. So Winton says, okay, here, here we go about our collaborations. He goes, for your gala event, you can't afford to have anybody on a gala event. So I want you to go and talk to the musicians and say, would you play on my gala event? I'm trying to do this for community. And he goes, watch what happens. So I said, okay. Start asking people. Jimmy, he, every, all these folks, everybody said, yes. Mm-hmm. I called Wynton. I said, okay, it worked. Will you play? He goes, yes. So, you know, it's like, it's been unbelievable. Like, it, it sounds like, uh, it sounds so easy, but collaborating and, 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 and bringing community together has changed my life. You know, mm-hmm. here at the school, I've tried it here. It's been incredible doing different series over the city, you know, with exposing the students to different things. It's been great. So in a sense, that's what my keynote was about. That, the, the, my final piece was community and cap collaboration. Mm-hmm. But there was time management. There was how to be your own manager, how to be your own booking agent, how, how you know, how to manage yourself as a musician. Yeah. Because we can't afford... Uh, commissions you know we don't want to afford commissions at first in time maybe we do if if we're Christian McBride and we're overwhelmed and overbooked and overwhelmed and we need help guiding and directing our life sure find someone to help but for most of us we just need to find skills and if you want to if you learn these skills when you want to go out and find someone you'll know exactly what you need Mm. you know you'll know what you need and you just won't get someone for the namesake or for the profession's sake. Yeah, I feel like that. That's a really big, big thing I look for in in different when people put out a record. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm looking at the band and I'm looking at uh, a, a great example is uh, saxophonist uh, Alexa Tarantino, mm-hmm. who I uh, interviewed for the show a couple, actually uh, a couple episodes before this one. Mm-hmm. And her band on her debut album, I would never have thought of putting those people together. And it, it's it's so beautiful. Wow. And you know, you know, she could have or one could just go for like the big name. Yep. And even though the people on a record are big names, yeah. uh the it, it was just so so good and the vibe was so tangible. Wow. And I think there's something to be said for 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 that. Yep. You talked a bit about uh, one of the things I really liked about what Winton told you was accept it first, 
and then do it. Right. I, I love that. That's that's um, that's it's something I've been trying to live by. Just just get it out there, do it. It's not going to get done for you. And that's a big theme of this podcast. Or and I seek out and guests are people who are just doing stuff. Yeah. So thank you so much for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about time management? I think that's huge, huge, huge. And been getting into into thinking about it more and more um, as I get older and have more responsibilities and just trying to get the the most out of what little time you may have. I know you're super busy. So uh, how do you get, could you talk a little bit about time management, maybe yep. some, some of the, the techniques you use and also in regards to, to practice time? Yeah. So um, when I was in college, <clears throat> I pledged a fraternity. That's when I learned about time management mm. because basically what they told me is anytime you don't have scheduled is our time. That could be a lot of things when it's the fraternity's time, and mm-hmm. not your time. And uh, so I started to realize how much free time I had because mm-hmm. I would turn in my schedule and it'd say like, you know, practice in the morning for, you know, an hour or two hours and then, you know, classes and then there'd be a break and then there'd be another break and there'd be lunch and then there'd be some classes and there'd be some practice and then another break. And every break that I had, I had to report to them. Mm. And I was like, this is crazy. You know, I'm with them more than I am doing my own thing. So then I started to look at my schedule and say, wow, all this free time I have from 5 a.m. in the morning when that's when they started to look at my schedule. So uh, so after about a week, you know, I said, okay, this has to change. <laughs> you know? yeah. So now instead of me practicing at 7 a.m., I would I would get up at 5 a.m. I would go to the gym or work out or whatever, and then at 6 a.m. I would start like my my breathing stuff and and start to practice over the music building at six and practice from like six to eight, six to nine thirty. Go mm-hmm. to my classes. I'd finish my classes, and after I finished my classes, that that period I had in the morning was like my maintenance kind of thing, and mm-hmm. then after my classes, when I had my next break. I'd start working on my growth things, like things that didn't go great with my maintenance. And mm-hmm. I'd work on those growth things in the afternoon to fill up this time that I could be given away. I'd go to my classes in the evening, I'd work on my exploration, you know, transcribing, you know, learning the tune. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all this practice that I'm doing, there would be someone that would sit with me when I was pledging this fraternity and, and make sure that you're utilizing your time. Mm-hmm. And they didn't understand I'm a brass player and you have to take breaks. So basically, when I'd sit down to practice, it was like, if I, if I put down my session was for two hours, they would make me play for two hours, which is, was incredible. Yeah. Because I learned how to pace myself. I learned, you know, how to, to work on different exercises, one that would build tension and one that would be a release of that tension. Mm-hmm. So there was so much I learned. Um, and then in the evenings, of course, it was, you know, I'd study or I'd uh, <clears throat> write my goals down and flush out how to outline my goals and put a time period on. There was just so much time that I had that I found out that I was just wasting. So then when I graduated from college, this has been, I've been obsessed with time management. So in my calendar, I write down everything. So my life now is all time management. You know, I have, a, you know, my wife and I have a three-year-old daughter. And so, you know, like this morning, I said, I told him last night, I said, I'm going to be up early today. I'm going to get up at 5 a.m. 
get ready so I can start to practice. I need to shed. So I got, you know, a couple hours in this morning. I made a 10 a.m. interview. You know, we're interviewing candidates for a position. I made that. I'll meet with you now. After we finish, I have another meeting. I have another meeting. And then uh, this great saxophonist, Ben Wendell, mm. is the guest here for the Jazz Cafe. So I'll introduce him and hear that music. Um, when he's finished with that, I'm not sure if I'm going to grab a bite, but I, I'm going to pack. Tomorrow I leave to go out on the road for close to two weeks. Mm. So I need to, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a cube packer. I'm not sure if you've heard of cube, no, the I cube have not. system. I'm a cube system packer. I know this is crazy. People yeah. are like this. <laughs> Lay it on me. I'm, so I'm, I'm a cube yeah. system packer. So basically I, I live my life through cubes and I do that physically and I do that mentally like I, I'm a compartmentalizer so mm -hmm. I don't want I don't want the fact that um, I have all this stuff to do to what today to get in the way of the, the time I want to spend with my daughter tonight you know mm -hmm. so uh, anything negative that may happen in my day-to-day -day with my next few meetings that could end up being really dark mm -hmm. I compartmentalize that when I get in my car to drive home mm -hmm. and and I look at my packing system very much how I live my life so I have a cube for for like shirts casual shirts I have a cube for suits I have a cube for dress shirts and and when I when I pack my bag it's all cubes mm. so when I get to my destination my first destination I take my cubes out and I place them in drawers categorically to my cubes and how I you know, which cubes that I use the most, you know, mm. so I unpack my suits and, and like my undergarment cube is in, in with my sock cube, which is in with, my, you know, mm -hmm. when it's time to, for me to go on a trip, I just use the cubes to pack. I don't randomly throw stuff in. Mm. I have all my days calculated to where I'm going to be. I know exactly what I'm going to need of each thing. I know how much my cubes will hold, you know, each cube will hold. Do I need a new cube? Mm -hmm. You know, do I not need this cube because this trip is, you know, it's a different kind of trip. So everything's in a cube, and and then the the joy of my cubes are when in one particular cube, if it starts to get empty because things go in my you know dirty clothes bag, mm -hmm. that's when I get excited because I get to come home. So my cubes, you know, yeah. my cubes are all full when I'm out, and then by the uh -huh. time I get home, everything's in this dirty laundry bag, and the cubes are empty, and I'm like, yes, I got two more pair of socks. I'll be home in two days <laughs> to see my family. So, but but that's you know, so I'm a, I'm a cube and that's part of my time management as well mm. like i don't want to spend an hour packing i think that's crazy people tell me oh, i've been packing for two days when i get home i can pack for a two-week trip in 20 minutes mm. if i put my mind to it i know how many suits i need i know how many blah 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 i need blah 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 boom cds go here boom so that, that's yeah and you know it's 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 cool you know yeah. So when I go on the road, like people are like, oh, man, I left this. I left this. Not me. <laughs> <laughs> Not me. This this goes in this cube. And yeah. I double check myself before I pack my cubes. That's so great. That's um, a, a thing you mentioned a couple times to summarize was my two takeaways was writing things down. Yep. I feel like that's a huge thing. Um, just the act of writing it just gets it out of your brain, decluttering your brain. And also creating situations where you make the decision beforehand. So you don't have to think about it when you're on the trip. The mm -hmm. decision's already made. Yep. The 
the decision that makes a thousand decisions or things like that. Just unpacking all that mental clutter. I feel like, I feel like, uh, we get desensitized to it. I, I never realized that that stuff until I started researching time management and trying yeah. to, and then you notice it more and more like, wow, I can really just not do this or I could do this beforehand. And, uh, so thank you so much for sharing that. I think that's super valuable, mm. uh, to the 21st century musician because yeah. in our society there's clutter, mental clutter everywhere. Yep. I would uh, like to switch gears a little bit to some of the questions that I ask most of my guests. Sure. I'm, I try to kind of tease out similarities between people mm-hmm. in regards to some kind of standardized questions that I've, I've thought about. Yeah. Uh, and the first is, was actually the, it was the first title of what eventually became this podcast the idea was a written column that was called how do you hear and it was very short interviews with people that use their ears for a living Mm -hmm. not necessarily a musician Mm -hmm. and just asking them how how do they hear yeah what's their process like and um i pitched that to some publications nobody wanted it that's fine it became this podcast eventually through a longer um, circuitous path but how do you hear? Like, what is your unique perception of hearing? And this could be in regards to how do you listen to music? How do you, how do you perceive sound? It's very op- open sure. to interpretation. Sure. You know, I hear, for me, hearing is everything because uh, I didn't realize that hearing was everything until I found out later on in life that I had dyslexia, which mm-hmm. my mom knew I had early on because she's a reading specialist and I, I never put two and two together where I was always going to these reading specialists. So my hearing and my speech is different than my sight and my writing. Mm. So hearing to me is everything because I can hear something and I can speak it and it's fine. But as soon as I pick up a pen, my world is rocked. Mm. So rocked. And it it's always been like that. And, and uh, it, you know, I give so much credit to my parents because a because when i was younger they you know they tell me stories now that they were trying to classify me as being you know disabled you know that's what you're that's what you're you're in that category when you have a learning disability Mm -hmm. you know you're automatically put in that category so they would have put me in a special school for the simple fact that i had dyslexia which is a very common disease many people have it so Basically, everything that I heard, I would try to memorize so that I didn't have to read. Mm. You know, um, reading is not my friend either. I can read fine. I don't like to read out loud. So when I did my keynote, there was no way. I just had bullet points. That's how I do everything. Bullet points. And then I practice practice it, you know, in an audience, you know, of, of my wife or an audience of a fictitious audience. So. So my ears are everything. I remember the f- the first things that I loved to hear um, when I, when growing up. I I spent like ten days a week in, at the church, and uh, I found that fascinating. In that, I would come into this 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 environment that I didn't know many songs when I was many of these spirituals and stuff like that. And you know, and these and these experiences that I had when I was growing up, 
it seemed like everybody knew the songs. And then after I would go, like, tons, I would start knowing these songs just from what I heard, not knowing that I knew the songs until I heard the song. And as soon as I heard it, I started to hear it, to sing it. And th- and it was always fascinating. Like, I, for, for my whole childhood, I thought that the worst musician in the band was the organist or pianist because someone would start singing, ah, you know, you know, whatever song it would be, his eyes on the sparrow, or whatever. They start singing it, and the organist would always go like, beep, bop, bop, beep, bop, 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 beep, bop, bop. And, I, and I'd sit there like, what are they hearing that I'm not hearing? Hmm. Why are they m- making all these mistakes? Little did I know that when people would sing, they didn't know keys. So mm-hmm. someone would just sing a song. Yeah. And the organist was trying to find the key so that they could accompany it. Now I'm like, you know, it's, it took some less notes than others and some that had perfect pitch to just come in and do it. But, you know, in hindsight, my, my respect grew so much from hearing these bum, 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 beep, beep, bum, 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 and then the mm-hmm. song would be rocking, the drummer would come in, and the bass player, you know, yeah, yeah. and it all come together, and then people would be going crazy and jumping and shouting and raising their hands. And so um, I've taken that part of what I heard and that part of my life to now. I love going, you know, when I was younger, I don't get to do it so much now, but I love going on a jam session and people would get afraid of not knowing a tune. Mm. And I love to go and figure it out. You know, whether I would say G7 or, you know, F7 sharp nine, that wouldn't be, I just want to hear how to navigate. I want to hear the melody, be able to at least play some pieces of the melody if I didn't know the tune, be able to hear where the harmony, where the bass notes are going, to be able to sit there and sing it. And so that came, that became like my bread and butter. Hmm. So knowing now learning harmony and knowing harmony, I still get directed just to hearing it, you know, because if I hear it, then I can hear other things around it and over it and through it. And, and, uh, and when I think about it, sometimes it detaches me from what the, the music is being made when I start to think too much. Hmm. So for me, hearing is everything. Sight isn't so, I mean, I, I read music pretty well that one of the reasons why I joined the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra wanted to do that because mm-hmm. I wanted to, you know, it's like I have to read something every day or, or my eyes will get funky, you know, yeah. with dyslexia. So uh, I have to make sure I read, of course, through my job here, I have to read, you know, all the emails that come in, which is good for me. But then with music, I want to, I need to be reading as much as I can. Mm. And, uh, you know, I used to shed just sight reading, sight reading, sight reading. And when I got when I got called for the band, the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra, the Mingus Band, or or the Carnegie Hall Band, or even even Lincoln Center Band, when I would get called for those bands, I would want to come in and just would I want to prove to myself that I could read this music if I concentrate it. And the mm. music was different for me to read than words. So all this to say is that my ears i i realize the blessing i have with my ears and and what i what i can hear and 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 i don't take that for granted mm. now with you know with my with my daughter i just i told my wife yesterday like i'm astonished to see how many words she's picked up just from listening to us like mm. the art of listening if people would just shut up in life yeah and just just listen there's so much you can learn you know there's this, there's this great book called The Five Love Languages hmm. written by this guy named Gary Campbell. And one of the, one of the love languages is, 
are words of affirmation. And that's the, that's the language, that's the, the love language that most people need. Mm-hmm. You know, there's gifts, there's other stuff. But words of affirmation are so important. And you can learn so much from someone just by listening to their story. Listening to who they are. Listening to what they want. Listening to what they... And you can learn how to make people feel really good. And you can learn how to make people feel really bad. Why would you want to make someone feel bad? I don't know. But but this, I read this book. It's basically for like relationships, like couples and stuff like that. But this book was so great for me to be a director of the program. Mm. You know, instead of me coming in as a director and, and just putting out what my vision is, why don't I sit back and listen and hear what yeah. people need, what students need, what faculty need. And if faculty are happy, students will be happy. And so it just it, it has me in a mode now of just shutting up and mm-hmm. listening. You know, my, my meetings that have happened today, the people will come in here and they'll go crazy on me. Like, you didn't do this, and you didn't do this, and you don't. I don't say anything. Because I really want to know where you're coming from. And if I get defensive, mm-hmm. and I start, if I start responding to every comment that's made, then I'll never hear what mm-hmm. I need to hear to resolve the problem. You know, so hearing is, is important for me from a musical aspect, but hearing is important for me just from my day-to-day life, you know, yeah. at this university. And then tomorrow I leave to go on this on this jazz cruise and when i get on there i'm playing with like so many different groups you know and so playing with a new group you know you, you play a tune and you shut up and you listen to see how people play you know how does how's lewis nash's beat going to be mm-hmm. with john clayton how can i fit into their beat how can i complement that beat you know rini rossis jumps in the comp what can i do you know how and so that whole aspect of hearing and listening is like my life now that's mm-hmm. all i want to be about you know, um, it's like when I joined the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra, they're like, take a solo. I'm like, I don't need to. Mm-hmm. I'd rather just, I want to be a good section player because section playing requires listening and anticipating mm-hmm. and understanding. And to be a great section player, you have to be a great listener. You know, so I know I overshot your no, question. That was a great, that was a great, great response. I, I, I feel like that's one of, jazz's great gifts to humanity is listening Mm. and in the age of information it gets harder and harder to listen yep i i think that jazz uh, is a great way for people to learn how to or sharpen their listening skills and i think that has benefits for for all of society and uh, brings me to uh, another uh, question that I ask a lot of my guests: mm-hmm. Is what do you like most about the younger generation of musicians? I like that uh, because of the information that they can access. They know what they want mm. more than I knew what I want when I was their age. Mm-hmm. They have more of a concept of of where they want to be going they have direction more than i had when i was when i was their age the thing that they don't have and they haven't necessarily thought about in some ways are a network you know how do we how do we come together on a unified front and support one another now that that's not some of them really have like 
you know, but but some of them really haven't because when there's so much information, you spend most of your time with the information mm-hmm. and not with the people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's why I, I say that, like, community may not be their number one thing. Learning, of course, is their number one thing. Accessing information, absorbing information through whatever channels they do. Mm-hmm. But you're not going to catch many of them hanging out, not in a, mu- you know, maybe at a music venue, but not hanging out grabbing a bite to eat or mm. you know getting to know people yeah. and putting the phones in the pockets and um so that's you know um what i love about the generation the younger generation is is the information they've acquired and i love hanging out with them because mm. they share some information and i love their insight and i love how mature so many of them are and musically speaking man you know like Man, I just heard of Manuel Wilkins last week. Yeah. That dude is, <laughs> yes. you know, like for such a young dude, even when he yeah, was yeah. before, you know, he was just like, really? Or Mackay? Like, yeah. what? Yep. You know? So I'm astounded by the information that they have. And and for the most part, I love hanging out with them and talking to them. I just uh, I just encourage them to, to build community, mm. you know, to when you're not gathering information, make sure you're you're hanging out with folks make sure you're passing along some information to those who may not have the same accessibility that you may have Mm. Uh, but i love the younger generation i think they're they have a great sense of humor they can tell you know a kid visited the other day from new zealand uh here perspective student and i was just i'm astonished by the information Mm -hmm. he he spends all his time has to spend all his time on the internet because he knows everything that's going on with every musician every jazz program i mean i was astounded by this dude's information mm-hmm. but he talked so much that he didn't even give me room to tell him <laughs> what what my goals were for mm-hmm. the program you know yeah he more or less so that's that's the one thing i think back to hearing and listening mm-hmm. that's something that i think the younger generation could embrace because they have so much information they can disseminate um that listening may not always be the number one thing so with as much as i love the information i think if um if they listen they would even acquire more and Mm. and develop even more relationships with uh with some of the older musicians i know there's a there's kind of a divide there's some there's some older musicians who i think are i don't know maybe threatened by the fact that the younger generation has so much information especially when they didn't at that Mm -hmm. age but i don't see it as a threat I see it as such a positive, man. Let, spend, let me spend some time with you to figure out what you know and how you got to where you are because that could influence me at mm-hmm. this point in my life where I want to go. So, I mean, there's so much I love. I mean, me being a teacher here, I embrace the younger generation like crazy, but I make sure that we hang out together, mm-hmm. you know, um, for the jazz band especially. Like, after rehearsal, we're all hanging. We're just yeah. going to put those phones down and just talk. Yeah, You know, get to know the person next to you. What do they like? What don't they like? You know, so that everything's just not about information. It's yeah. about community too. Yeah, I, I'd I'd like to uh, talk about the the Temple community uh, for a bit. And you mentioned the jazz band that you lead, the Temple Big Band, which just had a couple pretty amazing achievements. Uh, one was the the uh, Jack Rudin uh, jazz competition and the second being nominated for two Grammys. Uh, could you talk a little bit about uh, the jazz band and uh, maybe how you built it up to where it is and where you th- where you see it going? 
Well, the jazz band is something that's, um, I get very emotional when I think about it because when I started at Temple 24 years ago, mm-hmm. the jazz band was like seven people. And I remember going to, coming to Temple then, wasn't we weren't in Presser, we were in Tom Thomas Hall over here. And, and I was coming into Presser because it's sort of classical and I was just walking through some of the, down the hallways and said, hey man, do you want to play jazz in the jazz band? Hey, do you want to play in jazz band? They no, you want, oh yeah, I'll try it, yeah. So I put together a jazz band my, my first year here and nobody could solo. So I had to take all the solos because nobody would improvise. Mm. And it was just amazing, you know, like where things have come. It's just amazing. Now, we instead of having one jazz band, there's a total of six, <laughs> two of which are community-based. Yeah. And, you know, the community idea was, you know, I said, man, I, I figured we'd start a community band, jazz band, and there'd be no one in it. And, like, the first year, there were so many people. We had to start two. Yeah. And so there are alums that are in it. There's prospective students that are in the area that are in it. There's professionals that doctors, lawyers who just want to play there. I mean, it's amazing. So that's been great. And there's four bands that are, you know, four other big bands that are for majors. But for this competition, I'll start with that and then I'll talk about the Grammy thing. But for the competition, you know, I'm not a competition person. I've never been a competition person. I've always in my heart and mind have wanted to be just the best musician I can be. And I want to grow, you know, I want to be around people that want to grow. So that's my focus, you know, here at Temple. I never thought about the jazz band being the best jazz band. I just Mm -hmm. think like, let's play on a high level. Let me bring in like folks that can help, you know, whether it's Dick, A. Oates, man, I, I'm not really hearing where the saxophone section, how they're playing this phrase. And I know you've played it tons of times. Can you come? listen to him and give me some help on how I could direct him to play like this. And he'll come in. I have John Riley come in. I have Tim Warfield come in and, you know, Marshall jokes come in all these guys that I want them to come in for the students. They -hmm. shouldn't just hear from me. They should hear different perspectives on the music and different outlets. So one thing I'm proud of is that I do expose the students to quite a bit in the jazz band performing opportunities, but guest artists that come in and just folks that, that I just invite in to hear a rehearsal and give feedback, you know, could be a high school director you know and that's part of my community collaboration that went and turned me on to is that you know in, in empowering people don't don't just empower your, your community here at temple mm-hmm. bring folks in so that an outside high school can feel empowered by what temple has to offer and what they can offer temple and that's how you build community around you so I don't want to get too sidetracked on that. But I just had a, a guy, Frank Mazzi, who came and worked with the jazz band and gave some feedback. And he's a high school band director. Mm-hmm. And the band took it great. And, you know, I'm sure, like, in the future, you know, we do a festival. His band will be here. And, and my kids get to hang out with him. And I'm hoping in the future we could do, like, a joint concert together and just for fellowship and community. But anyway, back to the Jack Rudin. Uh, so when we were preparing for it, when Winton called me and he said, hey, man, I'm picking 10 bands in the country and I want them to come to do this competition. And he goes, is Temple ready? And I said, well, no, but, <laughs> you know, we'll get the music and we'll work on it. And this was like August, you know. And we were accepted to the Midwest Band and Orchestra concert this year, which is huge. So we started preparing and just started practicing and practicing and paying attention to detail and sectionals and some I'd come listen to some of the students would do on their own and 
And when we went to this Jack Rudin thing, we were, were pre- preparing for it. And the students were like, do you know what the prizes are? And I was like, who cares? Mm-hmm. That's stupid, man. You don't play jazz for a prize. You know, you don't, you don't, we don't do that. We play jazz for our spirit and our soul. And, and I said, let's forget about a prize and forget about it being a competition. I said, there's two things. If we're going to do this, when we go to New York to do this, I want you to come away knowing at least... 10 or 15 people more than you knew before you left Mm -hmm. and then the second thing is i want you to make sure that every single band that plays you find a way to go and encourage and compliment every musician that played and if you do that that's all i can ask for and then play on a really high level let's take it seriously and play and we went and uh we had our rehearsal with one of the lincoln center mentors and he was it was elliot mason who's been to temple before doing stuff Mm -hmm. and elliot just broke things down he's like you know you guys sound great but if you want to sound really good mm-hmm. let's start contributing everybody give me some feedback on what we could do to make it better and they did and we were fixing dynamics and in that day we fixed a lot you know mm-hmm. in our rehearsal time it wasn't just like we we're just going to show off for this dude we actually just worked in this you know in this rehearsal time that we had and and the band came and played great and the last thing to be honest with you is that I thought we would win. Not to say that they're not a great band. I just didn't think about winning. So when we were sitting there and they were announcing like best sax and best sections, I didn't think anything of it. And I was like, best trumpet section, best rhythm section, temple, you know, going in outstanding soloist, such temple, outstanding trumpet so te-. and I'm like, what? <laughs> and so we did make the finals that night. So we were the four bands that were selected to play on the evening concert and the and the competition went into the evening concert. And the kid, they they came out and they just played and had fun and were encouraging each other. And it was like a party on stage to me. I'll never forget. They were like in third place, Michigan State. And I was like, oh, man, you know, because they sound incredible. I thought they were going to be. And they're like second place in Indiana. I was like, oh, man, they sound incredible. And then North Texas, the guy from North Texas was two people away from me. And we were all on stage. And I just knew they were going to be like first place, North Texas, first place, Temple University. And I stood there and I'm watching the students jump up and down you know and i'm like why are they jump <gasps> <laughs> you know so yeah. it was it was pretty incredible i you know it was it was a great feeling to do so but honestly it was sad too for me i went and i accepted the award from winton and i shook his hand and i gave a little speech and then i turned around to walk past my colleagues back to my spot and i could see the faces of my colleagues and mm-hmm. that made me so sad because i was like you know, why do they have to be winners and losers? Yeah. Why? That that hurts, you know? Mm-hmm. So, but, you know, it was still cool. You know, yeah. <laughs> we won and we went out and we celebrated. And then the the uh, the, um, the, nom- the the Grammy nominations at, um, you know, year, seven, eight years ago, Dean Stroker here said to me, I want you to be chair of the instrumental, of the classical program. And I said, okay, well, he goes, your whole background is in classical music. Both of my degrees are in classical trumpet. And and he goes, I think you'd be a good person to do this. And he goes, basically what I, I want your role to be is to just bring unity to the instrumental department like you brought to the jazz. Not as easy, you know, different kind of mentality. And so, uh, but one of the, one of the things that, that happened was, which, which was cool is that I talked to the dean about 
commissions when I took over the classical program. I said, let's do some commissions, you know, not only for the orchestra, not only for the wind symphony, but let's combine the orchestra and the jazz band and create like a studio orchestra. Mm. And he was like, that's cool. Let's do it. So as soon as we did that, this was like, I don't know, seven years ago, six years ago, seven, eight, I don't know, got nominated for Grammy. <laughs> the next collaborative project got nominated for the Grammy. And so now this collaborative project with Oates and myself, we did a Sinatra one, and I don't think that got nominated, but this one, you know, got nominated, you know, for the Grammy. It's special, you know, it's mm -hmm. it, it's a representation of, of the whole instrumental program, jazz, classical, everybody came together to make this music. Vince Mendoza, who's an incredible writer and arranger, did the music and, you know, to have, he came in for a whole week, he was an artist and resident. It was incredible. I mean, performing his music, having him there conduct. Mm. I mean, I, I I watched him every night make notes and he'd do rewrites of his piece, the things that didn't work. Mm. Man, I love that. I love watching how he reconstruct or deconstructed, but then put it all back together, you know? Mm -hmm. And I know the students had to appreciate that, you know, this act of humility. He could have left it and said, oh, it's a college group. It'll be fine. But he didn't, man. He played attention to detail. He simplified. Then he, you know, that was the theme. You know, things that he wrote that were complicated. He was like, why did I write that? That's dumb. Let mm. me work on it tonight. And he'd come back and work on it and we'd rehearse it. And it was great. He'd ask input from the students. Uh, he did master class. He was, he did one of the best master classes I've ever heard in my career. I learned so much from his master class. I mean, A, he, it was a PowerPoint presentation, so I thought that was super slick. Mm. But the beginning of his master class, he just pushed, his computer pushed play. And his whole collage of music, his whole musical life, uh, he had someone put it together. And he went from like Motown to the Philadelphia Sound to blah, 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 to blah, 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 to blah. And all these different things from classical to jazz to hip hop. to blah, blah. And it was just his life, a collage of his musical life. Uh, it was brilliant. It was so beautiful. Mm. And then he had his arrangements, you know, his um, different, you know, arrange, you know, projects that he had. And he was highlighting some of his rhythmic uh, his rhythmic concept for arrangement, his harmonic concept, his reharmonization concept, all PowerPoint, all re and with with recordings that I learned so much. I love, I love so, so the Grammy thing was great that we got nominated. But that week he was here, I was my <laughs> spirit was uplifted. Thinking you could see my excitement. Yeah, I mean this dude broke it down for me. You know, it was just very very inspiring. And uh, at the end of the day, after we recorded it, you know. It was it was hard day of recording, you know. Students learned a lot. We recorded all day. I mean, by the end, mm. nobody could even speak. I mean, our brains were like so fried. Mm -hmm. And you know, you're a little discouraged when you come from a recording day because, you know, you want to put out this energy that's like, just like a live performance, but you can't. Mm. So you know, learning how to record was something that they learned that particular day, and it all came out good. And Grammy, you know, got nominated. But the the process was more important than the outcome for me. Absolutely. All about the process. All about the process. Um, well, thank you so much for spending this time with, with me. And um, I'm sure we could talk for many, many more hours about all things jazz and life. Uh, but I know you have some more meetings to get <laughs> to today. Before we uh, say goodbye to you, uh, where could um, my listeners find you and 
keep in touch with you and see what you got going on? Uh, well, my website is probably the easiest thing, www.terrellstafford.com. I'm trying to get better with Instagram. Mm-hmm. Uh, my Facebook, I, you know, I'm pretty good with that just because I don't do it. Someone does it for me. But he keeps, he, you know, he does a really good job with saying where I'm going to be. And that's kind of how I use my Facebook to say, hey, mm-hmm. you know, here's what we're doing. But, you know, for Temple, just the Boyer website, you can find out what, everything that goes on here at Temple. But And the Philly Pops, now that we've kind of had this partnership with them, um, they're going to start helping to promote what I do through them as well. So it's kind of, you know. Those are the, the, the spots to, to keep up and keep in touch. Mm-hmm. I love to be in touch with people. You know, I, you know, I'm a talker, as you could probably tell. So when I do have performances, I love getting to know people before, after, and during, if I can, performances. So for people to keep coming out and supporting live music, whether it has to do with me, my personal groups or a student group or my colleagues, keep doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's nothing that can replace live music, that experience that we all have. And... And we need to get as much support as possible so we can get these venues happy mm-hmm. and keep them alive and keep them going so that we have outlets to play this music. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Charles Stafford. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate it, Nicholas. Thanks for listening to the Voice Equals Power podcast. For me, this series is a labor of love. My goal is to help document the making of jazz history in this moment. If you have any suggestions about who you would like to hear on the show, drop me a line. Thanks for tuning in, and remember, your voice is your power.